Father, we ask that you would go before us this morning in our time in your word. Would you instruct our hearts to follow you? Would you help us see the things that are blocking us from that path? And Spirit, would you convict and change us? We ask that you would do it in your name. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, we are in week four of a five-week series called Mature in Christ. You heard Charles read Colossians 1.28. This is where this is birthed as we've been talking about uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus, to become like him, to do what he does. And Paul writes this to the church. He talks about Jesus he's proclaiming. And what he does is he warns and he teaches everyone with all wisdom so wise that he can present everyone mature in Christ. That as we follow Jesus, we all need something different in our maturing process to grow and understand what it means to become like him. And as we talk locally here at Peoria, we go like, what are the things that are blocking us from following Christ? What are the things that trip us off the path, that get us um, uh, away from that journey of maturing in Christ? And what stunts our growth Immaturity and the things there could be lots of things, but they're things that we've been focused on to begin 2024 to continue to have these conversations, not to start, not to end them, but to start them. Are two things: they're pride and shame. And so we've been talking about what what is pride? How how does it knock us off of following Jesus? And, and last week we started talking about what is shame? How how is that something that that gets us to hide from God? And what we'll talk about is how, how we hide from each other because of shame. This morning, those are things that we feel like as a community, we need to ask God to change in us, that he has to be the one that exposes our pride, exposes our shame, and puts it in the ground, that we cannot do it on our own, but that we're asking God through his word, through his spirit, in his community to change that in us as a group. That's where we've been going, and we'll talk today about how shame affects us, not only how we hide from God, but how we hide from one another, and then next week we'll kind of tie it together with pride and shame collectively, and then we'll jump into the book of Esther, and we'll spend several weeks in that Old Testament narrative. And again, as a baseline, if you're joining us for the first time, pride, we've talked about pride. Pride is this idea that, man, you're good enough on your own. You don't need anybody, and you don't need God. You're good enough on your own. And for me, one of the things I said is an indicator of when I start to see pride under the surface in my heart is when I start defending myself. When I start, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I, I naturally start to do that. I push back on things that I don't like. And that exposes my pride pretty quickly. And we talked about in the first week how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That pride is the spiritual silent killer in all of us. So pride is you're good enough on your own. Shame is this nagging sense that you're, you're never good enough, that something is inherently wrong with you. We talked last week that guilt is something I've done wrong. Shame is I am wrong. There's something wrong with me, and it leads us to hide. If pride's about defending, shame is about hiding. And we looked at Genesis 3 last week and how the enemy uses this, this bait at the end of his hook. He uses shame and he uses pride to get us to be in isolation from God and from one another. And how those things are dangerous and we have to figure out where are we seeing those things show up in our life because they are sneaky the way they operate. And the gospel 
says this. It says that, man, you're actually not good, good enough on your own. We talked about that last week, that there is a good element of shame that pushes us towards the cross. The, the worldly shame would say, man, you're, you're just not any good on your own. You can't do it on your own. But the gospel would say, apart from Christ, you are not good on your own, but you're loved. You're created in God's image. He desires relationship. So that, that shame should push us towards our surrender to Jesus to be covered in our shame through the blood of Christ at the cross. And the gospel says, man, we're not good enough on our own, but we're loved. And when we surrender our life to Christ, instead of hiding from God, we begin to hide in him. And we have freedom in that. And that allows us to be fully known and fully loved, to be fully human, to understand what that looks like. Because of the cross, we can deal with our shame in that way. And not only does the enemy use shame to convince us we need to hide from God, but it also convinces us that we need to hide from each other. And so we begin to put these masks up, even with one another, and what, that ha- what happens when we do that is it just begins this cycle of shame. I do something wrong, and I feel so debilitated about it. I, there's no way I can tell you what I did, because if I tell you what I did, you're going to look at me, and you're going to go, oh, I can't believe you did that. And so what happens, it, it begins to get the cycle of isolation. So I, I don't feel like I can really tell you because you're not going to understand. And then I just keep getting further and further and further on my own. And that's this cycle of shame that we need to learn, how the cross breaks that cycle of shame. Because if you're out on your own and you're just in isolation, you're not really fully known and you're not really fully loved. Even if you might feel somewhat protected, it's a, it's a trick. That's not how we were meant to live. And the gospel tells us something different. Kurt Thompson, who I quoted a lot last week, and I'll continue to quote, he he has a book called The Soul of Shame, which is very helpful reading in this conversation to understand shame. He says this. He says, we recognize early and often that shame tends to be self-reinforcing. We, uh, when we experience shame, we tend to turn away from others because of the prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame being intensified or reactivated. However, the very act of turning away while temporarily protecting us and relieving us from our feeling that the gaze of the other ironically and simultaneously reinforces the very shame we are attempting to avoid. Notably, We do not necessarily realize this to be happening. We're just trying to survive the moment. But indeed, this dance between hiding and feeling shame itself becomes a tightening of the noose. We feel shame, and then we feel shame for feeling shame. Has that ever happened to anybody? It's definitely happened to me. So how do we break this cycle of shame because of the gospel. And if you're taking notes, the big idea today, if we're talking about hiding from one another and what shame actually does is this, that shame grows in the dark, but it dies in the light. Shame, it grows in the dark, in isolation. I can't tell you, you can't know. It begins to grow, that intensifies in this cycle. But what happens, how do we kill shame? We bring it into the light. And I know for me, um, when I start to pray about an issue in my life, um, this happens often in, in my journey with trying to follow Jesus. I'll start praying about something, and about a decade ago, I started praying. I just feel like the Lord's bubbling this stuff in my surface of my soul as I, as I read his word, as I begin to pray. Like about 10 years ago, it was about love. Like, man, what does it actually look like to really love somebody? 
God, would you teach me? Would you show me as I follow you? You you say your love. You embody love in Jesus. How do I love? I don't feel like I'm loving very well. How can I love? And what I'm praying in that moment is I'm going, God, would you teach me how to love? And in my mind, I'm going, just give me a direct a direct connection, some type of material, something easy to read, and as I read it, I'll just, I'll just learn how to love, and that'll be great. And I feel like God answered that a, a little less than a decade ago as he brought this ministry called See Jesus in, into my preview, into the uh, ecosystem of redemption, as, as See Jesus really looks at what does it actually look like to look at Jesus and see how he loves, his patterns, and what does it actually look like? I feel like he answered that. But at the same time, because that's what I feel like when I pray that, God, give me this direct connection. Okay, I'm going to understand how to love. Great, awesome. Just, you know, I could kind of go to sleep, and then I'll just wake up, and I'll love people better. That's not how it works. So as I'm praying, God, would you teach me how to love? I'm going, okay, this is what I'm asking for. But then he's just going like this. He just goes, oh, you want to learn how to love? Oh, I'm going to put somebody, I was with another ministry at the time. I'm going to put a really hard person in your life that you need to learn how to love. Because if you really want to, are you serious about learning how to love? I'm going, well, I'm serious about the material. God, just give me the easy answer. And he's going, no, 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 no. Let me holistically change you. Moment by moment, I'm going, wow, I don't I don't know if I prayed for that. That's not. So even as I've, we've been praying and hovering around, like the last year of going like, okay, pride and shame just seem to be like crippling. As I read the scriptures, as I evaluate my own life, as I realize, man, pride really throws me off course and shame really throws me off course in my relationship with Jesus. And those things are so deeply ingrained in me as a person. Man, God, would you kill any pride or shame? Just give me some type of book to read. Give me some type of material. That's great. And he has given me the, here he comes. It's like, what? No. So I realized it uh, a couple of months ago as we were praying this, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year, last year, um, all of a sudden, um, I'm looking at our finances and I'm going like, oh man, we're, we're kind of piling up some debt. Like this is, this is not good. So when that starts to happen, here's, here's what I do as an Enneagram one. I go, I'm not telling anybody this. Because like, okay, I need to figure this out. I'm going to start moving money around. I'm going to get out of my savings. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start to, like, I'm, I'm going to get on top of this on my own. And it doesn't work. And then it's like, well, there's people in our church that are really financially secure. They're great stewards with, with the money that they have. And, the money. and I was like, go talk to this person. I don't want to talk to them because I know exactly what they're going to tell me to do. And I already know what the answer is. So why would I go tell them? Because it feels exposing. It feels like, I don't want to share this. I should have this figured out. That, those are all the messages in my head. So then I, what happens is I just start going like this. And I'm just more alone and more alone and more alone. And the Lord's like, didn't you want to learn about pride and shame? I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, here's what I'm teaching you. And so as I bring that into the light and I start talking about it with my wife and the staff and going like, man, this is, because I feel embarrassed by it. I feel like I should have this figured out by now. Like this, this shouldn't be a problem. And what the enemy wants to tell me is like, you can't tell anybody that. You just have to figure that out on your own. Because shame grows in the dark. But as I begin to have conversations with safe people, bringing it into the light, do you know what God did? One, he started to expose my shame of like, man, I feel really shameful about this. And then he started to expose my pride because I don't want to tell those other people because I feel proud like I should have this figured out on my own. See how those two things work? 
And as I began to trust the Lord and he began to show me, I'm trying to teach you this lesson, even if it's not a way you would have thought, and actually this is really going to get to your heart. It's like, okay. As I began to bring it into, into the light with safe people, he began to heal it and change it. It's like, okay, I'm learning this lesson. This is not how I thought I would learn this lesson, but isn't that what God does? He begins to expose it in a way more holistic way to go, if you really want healing, let me help you. And that's painful. But the only way really to get healing is often in painful ways. And so, again, as we talk about this, and we're talking about this idea that, that shame's message is this. It's this. For safety, stay hidden in isolation. You can't tell anybody. And, and what results of that is you're not really fully known and you're not really fully loved. It's this message of you, you can't talk to anybody about this. You can't, you can't share this. Other stuff you could share, you can't share this. That's the message of shame. Now, it wouldn't be helpful to tell everybody this, right? I'm not suggesting you walk on an elevator and all of a sudden it's this stranger and you just tell them all your deepest stuff and it's like, well, that, that's, that's overcorrecting in another direction, but you need to have some safe people that you can have a conversation with about things that you go, I can't tell anybody this. Because again, shame grows in the dark and it heals in the light. And shame's message is of complete isolation from the Father. And the enemy, as we looked at it last week, if you weren't here, this is in Genesis 3, what, what does the enemy do with shame? He convinces Eve that, um, to sort things out on her own. Don't talk to God. Don't talk to Adam. Don't talk to anybody else. You have to figure it out on your own. And he redefines the truth and makes her question if God really loves her. And he plants the seed of doubts, and then he waters it with shame. You're not worth it in isolation. You're on your own. So one of the conversations I've had with with a couple people since last week is, man, that was really helpful language. It kind of helped me get around some of this stuff. But if there's a a conviction, a good thing from the Spirit, when you know, man, you're out of bounds and you need correction, you need discipline, you need help, how do I tell the difference between that voice and the voice of the enemy with shame? Because sometimes they sound alike, which is what the enemy wants to do. He's a counterfeit voice. So how do I tell the difference between those two? And the more I talked to people about it and the more I had conversations just with myself, it's going like, um, when I hear that voice of shame, not, not the, the conviction from the Spirit, when I hear that voice of shame, it's almost always like, you can't tell anybody this. It kind of puts you out on an island. It puts you in isolation versus when I hear the voice of the Spirit, it's like, <coughs> excuse me, you need to con- confess this. Bring this to people that you trust. Those seem to be two differences. As we looked last week at Genesis chapter 3, a familiar text for many of us, but we looked at it in the lenses of of shame. I want to look at another familiar text this morning to to some of us that have been walking with Jesus for a while. But again, I I want to look at it in the lens of shame and pride. And this is another temptation. So open your Bible, if you have it, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is the beginning of it. It's a temptation of Jesus. 
And if you were here with us last week, we paid attention to the last verse leading into Genesis chapter 3. We looked at Genesis 2, 25, where the man were both naked and felt no shame because it was catapulting us into the next part of the story. The author's doing something intentional and setting you up for shame to begin to enter into the narrative. The same thing happens with the author here in Matthew. The end of Matthew chapter 3, before we get into, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 4, the last verse Verse 17, if you're not familiar with the story, Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. And look at what Matthew 3, 17 says. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's setting you up just like the end of Genesis chapter 2 for what's about to happen in the next part of the story. That Jesus is fully loved. He hasn't done anything, hasn't done any public ministry at this point. But the father is saying, you are loved. This is going to carry him over into his temptation in the wilderness. So let's look at Genesis, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 11. We'll do that collectively, and then we'll come and we'll break it apart. So again, think through the lenses of pride and shame, the way the enemy uses this bait on the end of his hook. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says this, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered it, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse eight, again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Let's look at these verses back again through the lenses of pride and shame, and how the enemy is using this as a tactic. He's using pride, he's using shame to try and tempt Jesus to do what he's not meant to do. Verse 1, again, as, as Jesus goes into the wilderness, he's to be tempted by the devil. Again, the bait on the end of the devil's hook is pride and shame. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Why, why does the author have that? That feels like pretty obvious, right? But what it's doing is it's speaking to Jesus's humanity, right? Jesus is fully divine. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. Some of us would go, well, you know, Jesus could, he could resist the temptation. He's, he's God. But what this is speaking to directly, the author is going, he, he feels the same thing you feel. He is fully human in this moment, even though he is fully divine. What's the first thing the enemy does in verse 3, the first uh, temptation? Tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
What's the message of pride here that the enemy is using to Jesus? He's saying, listen, um, you're hungry. You can do this. It's not even wrong to do this, but what is he saying? He's like, meet your own needs. You don't need to rely on the Father. You don't need, just meet your own needs. Turn these stones into bread and just do it on your own, which is speaking to his pride. I can do it on my own. I don't need, anybody, I don't need anybody's help for anything. What's the message of shame? The enemy is tempting Jesus with in the moment. Man, if the Father really loved you, you wouldn't be hungry. God would provide for you. The Father would provide for you. But clearly you are hungry. You're not getting your needs met. And so uh, you have to do it on your own, number one. And the Father doesn't really love you. Because if he really loved you, then he would provide for you. And clearly you're hungry. And he's not providing for you. You see how sneaky this is? Does anybody relate to this, this idea of, man, I got to do it on my own, and man, if, if God really loved me, then this circumstance, this situation wouldn't be happening. I know when I was single before I met my wife, well, I met my wife, but I wasn't dating my wife. Before I was with my wife, I would go back and forth with this, this idea, like, you know what, like, you got to figure it out on You got to go out. You got to you got to pursue, and you got to find the right woman. And you like you got to meet your needs on your own. And if God really loved you, wouldn't He provide a spouse for you? Clearly, you're not dating anybody. There's not anybody on the radar. Like like, wouldn't God provide for you? Those things of pride and shame were entrenched in my thinking, and I would go back and forth. And I got to figure it out on my own. I got to do it on my own. And then go, wait a second. Let me trust the Lord with it. Let me trust with his timing. Because it, 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 and I would go back and forth, back and forth. Sometimes I would walk in my flesh trying to do it on my own, believing these lies of pride and shame. And then sometimes I would be in the spirit and I'd go, no, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. And that's hard work. Let's see how the enemy continues to tempt Jesus with pride and shame. The next thing he says in verse 5. The enemy says, throw yourself down and, and the word of God will rescue you. The enemy even uses God's word and he twists the context of it to make it sound believable. He's saying in, in his pride, man, uh, do, do, you really, do you really need the Father to rescue you, Jesus? <laughs> like you should be able to do it on, you should be able to rescue yourself. If you're the son of God, you don't really need the Father to rescue you, but it says that he will. The shame piece of it, this idea of like, man, are you not enough on your own? He's saying, if the Father really loves you, he'll rescue you, but he probably won't. Test him. See if he'll do it. I know you say he's going to rescue, but you need to try it out because he probably won't rescue you. You really know he really doesn't love you. And isn't that the message we hear all the time? And we mess up, we fail, and we go like, okay. Even last week, we were, we were singing that song, How He Loves Us, that throwback song that Stephen led us through on our response time. Oh, how he loves us. And do you know what I was thinking in my head when I'm singing that song? I go, oh, how, I'm not going to sing How he loves us. I kind of did. And I'm going, no, he doesn't. The enemy's going, no, he doesn't. Man, he doesn't really love you because he knows this about you or that about you. And if you were, if you were really lovable, it would be because you did this, that, and the other. Instead of going, that's the voice of the enemy going like, he doesn't really love you. Does he really love you? Planting the seed of doubt, watering it, shame. You're not enough, and you can't tell anybody that. That's isolation. This is what shame wants to do. We, we, we begin to hide from each other. Throw yourself off 
And, and doesn't it say that God will rescue you? But do you really believe he will? I don't know. That's kind of what shame does. That's how the enemy is working. And then in verse 8, this last temptation, the enemy says, all the kingdoms I will give to you, but you have to bow down and worship me. The message of pride here is going, um, uh, you, uh, you can have it all on your own without the Father. You don't need the Father. You can do it on your own, can't you? Aren't you good enough? And, and sometimes in our pride, we go, yeah, I think, I think I am. I think I am pretty good. That's the, the bait of pride and then the bait of shame. And that statement is, man, you're not good enough unless you do what? You bow to me. That's what the enemy is saying. If you bow to me, you do it my way, God's way, the Father's way. Man, that's old-fashioned. That's not really how to do it. You do it this way. This is the way you get results. And you're only good enough if you bow to me. How does Jesus combat the lies of pride and shame? in the text because he has the opportunity he's he's in isolation already he's already pulled away from community think about it in his humanity i mean i know i make terrible decisions when i'm hungry and when i'm tired jesus is at the depths of his humanity in that sense of weakness of frailness he doesn't have anything to rely on but what does he rely on what does he do to, to the enemy's bait every single time he quotes scripture he says it is written Jesus knows that his belovedness, what the Father has said in the, or the last verse of chapter 3, he, this is where I'm rooted, and I'm, I'm not by myself. I have God's word in and through me. I'm not alone. This is how you combat the lies of pride and shame. You know the Bible. You know what's true about you. Because, again, we can read it all day long, but do we really believe it's true about us? And some of us, we just don't take the time to actually read it. We have to spend time investing in God's word to understand it, to let it get inside of us to go, actually, it is true that he loves me. Not based on my performance, not based on whether I do good, or I do, but I see it in the cross. I see it, what he's done in his son, and I believe it to be true. And we have to hold those things. As we hear that voice of shame from the enemy, we have to take every thought captive and we have to make it obedient to Christ. We can only do that if we know the Bible, if we know the word. He quotes God's word every single time. He doesn't redefine the truth on his own like Eve does, but he goes, no, this is actually what's true. This is what's actually true of me. And we need to begin to do that if we're going to have any hope and pride and shame. Then I love verse 11. Verse 11 just, it, it feels kind of weird. It feels, okay, the devil leaves him. We get that part, but then... The angels came and ministered to him. That feels like, what's that about? It's like, well, now Jesus is no longer in isolation. As he declares the truth of what is true of him in God's word, now he is taken out of the dark and brought into the light with other, not people, but angels. He has community helping him heal in the midst of the hard temptation that was in front of him. I love that. And again, shame's message, like we talked about, uh, this is the message. For safety, stay hidden in isolation, not being fully known, not being fully loved, but the gospel message is this. For freedom, receive healing in community, being fully known, being fully known. And we need each other in this journey to combat shame. 
And we are not Jesus. We're way more like Adam and Eve. We need God's word. We need each other to break this cycle of pride and shame. We cannot do it on our own. Again, that's the message. You can't tell anybody. You've got to figure it out on your own. And it's counterintuitive to go, let me just bring me my mess. Because I've done that before, and I've seen the reaction on your face, and I go, well, that's not, I don't want that. (laughs) But what God is asking us to do, to bring our shame to one another, to confess to one another that there's actually healing that can happen in safe places as we bring our shame and our pain out of the dark and into the light. Now, we, we might not be doing this. You might have something that you haven't told anybody, and you have that in your head, and you go, I'm not telling anybody that. Like, that's because you don't want a consequence. Or maybe you want to just continue to do what you're doing in the dark, and you go, I know if I bring this to the light, there's going to be like, well, that's not actually your best, and I don't want to just keep doing this. And so if that is the case, if that is you, that you're just hiding your actions from other people um, because you go, like, I don't want to suffer the consequences. You're you're already caught in the context of, like, do you know that you're already suffering consequences that you're unaware of? You're suffering the consequences of being in isolation, not really being known. And you go, well, that's better than suffering this consequence of, like, I have to change or this is embarrassing And that's what the enemy wants you to believe. He wants you to continue to float out until you're on an island and you go, I can't tell anybody this at all. But there's a consequence to that is that you're not fully known and you're not fully healed. And it will continue to compound. And so we have to bring it into the light. And there's sometimes there's discipline when you bring things into the light, but God loves you in the midst of that. Hebrews talks about that in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6, 10. Now, verses 6, verses 10, verses 11, this is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you're hiding from one another because you don't want discipline because you go, ah, I don't want to do that, ah, you got to realize that God loves you. He wants the best for you. As we bring things to one another, we go, actually, I don't think that's the best for you. And we lean into it and we listen to it and we abide in it. We begin to change. Even though it's painful at the beginning, it's going to help you in the long run. And again, some of the sneaky deceptions going, wow, I don't want to deal with that discipline. Ah, I'm just going to stay over here by myself. And then you don't get real healing. And then you get stuck in this cycle of shame. Shame grows in the dark, but it heals and dies in the light. So if that's true, how do we become a community that fosters a place of honesty and confession? Can we be that type of place? Can we all recognize that we're a mess? We'll talk about that next week, that we're all a mess. And so I can bring um, my conversation about my debt into a safe place where I don't have to hide it, but I can go, you know what, like I I need help. I need help with this. I I feel helpless right now. Would you be willing to help me and not have the other person kind of go, what the heck, man? Because that's what I feel like they're going to say. And you know when I do that in a safe place, they never say that. It's way bigger deal in my own head. 
every single time because of pride and because of shame and how the, an the enemy just wants to turn the dial up on those things. And when I get into a safe place with people that love Jesus, you know what they say? They go, okay, man, I love you. Let's help you figure this out. And it's always better on the back end. Even if it stings a little bit, even if there's discipline in it, it's always good in the long run. So how do we become a, a community where we can uh, bring other things into the light with one another? Four things I just want to leave you with as we go. Because some of us are going like, I need to come out of hiding, but I don't know how to do it. And then some of us are going to be in the opposite end of the opposite place. And we're going like, okay, somebody's going to bring something to me. How do I not freak out on them and create a safe place so that they can continue to bring those things into the light. Because if I bring something into the light with you and you react in a way that's not good, I'm not bringing anything into the light with you anymore. I'm gonna just continue to hide it. So four quick things that will be helpful for us in this conversation. Um, number one, there's no slides on this, but if you're writing notes, you can, you can write these down. Number one, we need to listen. Number one, we need to listen slash pray. So when somebody brings something to me, they're bringing this heavy thing that they've just been holding on their own, and they're so scared to, to say it because they go, oh, I don't know if I can say anything. I just need to listen. I don't need to try and fix. I don't need to try and judge in this moment. What I need to do is I need to listen, and I need to pray. God, what should I do? What should I say? Help me listen here. Help me have ears that are compassionate for this person, for this situation, even if I don't understand it. Number one, you need to listen. Number two, we need to learn how to be empathetic. We need to empathize with the other person. Because when I bring something to you in that moment, I don't need you to fix me. I need you to hear me. That's what's going to help in the transformation process, in the healing process. I don't need all your fixing strategies right away. I just need you to listen to me. I need you to understand, man, this is hard for me to bring to you. This feels heavy to me. I feel shame around this. And what I need you to do is identify an area where that's happened to you before, and you can empathize with me in the moment and go, man, that's really hard. Thanks for bringing that to me. That must have been really hard to say that. Do you know I love you? I'm committed to, to helping you if I can, if you want my help. Number one, we need to listen and pray. Number two, we need to empathize with each other. Look at what Kurt Thompson says about this. He says, when I see my friend's face, hear his voice, sense his empathy for my plight in real time and space, I am giving the opportunity to imagine a different way of telling the story of what has only been shame and isolation. He's talking about what's happening in your brain medically. Like he's a, a, a neurotheology uh, person, like Kurt Thompson is. And so he's going like, something happens in my mind, in my brain, when I'm in that space and I'm sharing what's true and you empathize with me, I realize actually there is a path forward. I don't have to be as scared as I thought I was. So one, we need to listen slash pray. Number two, we need to empathize. Number three, we need to pray slash listen. As I hear what you bring to me, it's heavy. I'm empathizing with you. I'm trying to help you know I'm in your corner. I'm with you. Now I need to go back and I need to pray and go, okay, Lord, what's my role in this? How do I need to continue to love? What's the next step forward in this conversation? How do I help this person if they're wanting help? So we need to listen slash pray. We need to empathize. We need to pray slash listen. Number four, we need to restore in a posture of Galatians 6.1. Restore in a posture of Galatians 
6.1. This is what Galatians 6.1 says. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of harshness. Nope, that's not what it says. In a spirit of gentleness. Man, we get harsh when people bring stuff to you, especially if you're a parent, man. Like if, if your kid says something to you, like I, I want, because I want to fix it, I want to control it, I want that for my kid. And so I can often go to harshness to go like, ah, that's not helpful. It's not helpful. I need to pull back and I need to go, okay, how do I listen? How do I empathize? How do I pray? And how do I have a spirit of gentleness in this restoring process? couple things in here. This word spiritual, you who are spiritual should restore. And you're like, well, I'm, I'm not spiritual. But the word spiritual, literally in, in the original language, it just means one who is filled or governed by the Spirit of God. And if you've given your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in you. That is you. You are spiritual. Because you might go, well, I, I, I don't know. It's like, no, like this is a task for all of us, collectively together. And then restore means to strengthen, to make one, what they ought to be. That you would, would help with the power of the Spirit as you're praying, as you're listening, that you would come alongside somebody in a spirit of gentleness to go, okay, how can we change this? How can I help you? My wife and I were gone a couple of weeks ago, and, and um, one of the, the folks that we were listening to uh, was a sex therapist and helping us go, like, how, how do you navigate conversations with couples? We do some marriage ministry stuff, and, and, and what happens when somebody has uh, cheated on somebody else? How, how do you help restore? What does that look like, whether it's pornography or, or it's something uh, deeper than that? What, what does that look like? And one of the things he said in this context, which is really helpful language to me, he says, um, one of the things I always think of, and he's been doing this about 30 years as a therapist, he goes, and I try to not catastrophize or minimize. When somebody brings something to me and confesses something, you don't catastrophize like, oh my goodness, the world is, I can't believe, and you're like, it's the worst thing ever, like, oh no. Like, that's, some people do that, and then some people minimize, just go, oh, well, it's not that big a deal. He goes, when you do those two extremes, it doesn't really help the person, and it's probably not very accurate. How do you lovingly restore with gentleness as you pray, and you listen, and you empathize, and you go, you know what? Man, I, I, I've screwed up too. Could we, take, could we take next steps to figure out what does this look like? Now that this is exposed and it's kind of vulnerable and you're just kind of hanging out, what, what can it look like to walk alongside you in love and gentleness to restore what's broken? And we're all broken. I thought that was helpful language. Again, shame's message is this. For safety, stay hidden in isolation. But you're not ever fully known. The gospel message is for freedom. Receive healing and community to be fully known. Some of you in the room need to confess some things, whether it's to your spouse or your friend. You, you've been hiding this stuff in isolation, and you haven't told anybody, and it's eating you away. Or you're just numb to it at this point, which those are two bad things. You need to step out and you go, you know what? Like, I, I, just, I just need to say this to somebody. Would you be somebody I could say this to? And then if you're on the receiving end of that, listen, pray, empathize, pray some more. And then go, how do I restore in a, in a spirit of gentleness to continue to bring that stuff into the light instead of it festering and growing in the dark? We need to learn how to stop hiding from one another 
and bring our mess to one another for healing. Because that's actually what the gospel does. At its core, we hide because we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be abandoned. But if you know Jesus' last words as he ascends to the Father, most of us know the front end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, but the last words Jesus says is what? And I'll be with you always. You're not alone. The cross proves that. The resurrection proves that. Jesus' words prove that. Don't believe the lie that the enemy wants to tell you. You're all alone. You can't tell anybody. Jesus is with you. There's a community of people that love you. We are with you in this. Let's get freedom. And again, let's continue to have this conversation. We know this isn't going to be a one-time thing and we're, whoop, we're, we're good like this. We want to continue to have this conversation of pride and shame to bring out what has been festering and growing in the dark to bring it to the light for healing. We'll continue to talk more about what that means next week. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Thanks that what the gospel proves is that we can come out of hiding that the blood of your son covers our shame. And fathers, we walk down this aisle to the table every week. May it be a place where we can take off our mask. We can come out of hiding, God, with you and with each other. And you would heal us, spirit, by your power, by your word, by your community. Help us grow in this. We are desperately in need of you. We ask it in your name. Amen.